Let's pray as we come to God's word. Will you pray with me as I pray for us? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word that you have given us. We pray in your mercy you would help us to concentrate, to hear what you say, to understand it, to believe what you say, and most importantly we pray in your mercy Give us the grace and strength to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, here in Victoria we've heard quite a bit of warfare language recently. You and I, we are told, are on the front line of a struggle with a deadly, invisible and cunning enemy in a battle to protect our healthcare system and our lives. It's a war in which we have our bit to play wearing masks, washing hands, keeping our distance, restricting our movements to both protect our own health and the health of others. It's taken quite a shift in our thinking to live aware of this unseen enemy and quite a change in our behaviour to combat it with whatever resources we have. And now we live with the stress of the struggle and anxiety about an uncertain outcome. Stress and anxiety that focus our energy and attention on the present, on just getting through this moment. But God's word in Ephesians 6 tells us that the struggle of this moment in our lives is just part of a bigger struggle with a greater and more cunning, more malicious enemy. A bigger struggle that goes on throughout our lives. It calls us to step back and see our present experience. The experience, sorry, it calls us to step back and see our present experience, the experience of each day, as part of that bigger struggle. At the same time, it assures us that our God provides us with all the resources we need to engage in that struggle and he ensures our success. So the outcome of this struggle is not in doubt. And that is good news for what is at stake in this struggle is not our health, but our present relationship with the living God who rules over all things, including our health, our prosperity and our eternity. We are called in Ephesians to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The thought that we are wrestling against spiritual powers who can affect our lives, even take us captive, was not a new one for the Ephesians. They lived in a world populated by gods whose favour you had to seek by sacrifice and ritual. Gods like Artemis, whose temple and worship was central to Ephesian life. Oh, they also believed in astral powers and spirits of the underworld who could be manipulated for or against you by magic. For the people of Ephesus, if your crops failed or your business did not prosper, if your child got ill or you weren't feeling so well yourself, well, it was probably because the gods were angry with you. Or it might be that someone has enlisted malevolent spirits to harm you. 
These were not quaint ideas, but their reality. You heard in Acts of the magic books the believers burned, worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that's 50,000 days worth of a labourer's wage. It's about 142 years worth of the basic wage on a rough calculation about $3.5 million. Now that tells you that those books were a serious investment in power and protection. But they were getting rid of those books. And they were getting rid of them not because they came to believe these spirits and gods did not exist. No, it was because the Ephesian believers became convinced of Jesus' power. These new believers had abandoned appeasing these gods and spirits, but they still lived conscious that they existed and could act in their world, conscious that these powers that they had once served were opposed to them, hostile to them. So it mattered to these Ephesian believers to know how they could live safe from their influence, be kept from being overwhelmed by their malevolent power. Uh, This consciousness of spiritual powers active in the world, well, it's still part of the worldview of many people in our world today, people like the Mien in northern Thailand that Daniel and Tamami have been working amongst. Amongst the non-Christian men, the village shaman, the one who can contact and manipulate the spirits, has great power and influence. But you say, well, this is not our worldview. In the West, uh, we don't live, or most of us don't live, in a world populated by spiritual powers. Uh, We're free of that. We believe that the only conscious agents in this material world are we humans, and it's only human evil that we must worry about flesh and blood opponents. If you believe that, then you have blinded yourselves to Scripture's teaching and also, I think, to the reality of the working of malicious evil in the world. From chapter 3 of Genesis, we see a being at work in defiance of God and seeking to enslave humanity to itself. Uh, Today we may not see the kind of demonic activity that was recorded in the Gospels, but our Lord Jesus located the devil's work particularly in lies and murder, and we know the fruit of that work of his amongst us every day. Behind the claims of idolatrous governments, Revelation 13 portrays the work of the devil, and such governments arise with great regularity in history. The epistles see the devil at work in false teaching in the church where the devil's servants can disguise themselves, says Paul, as servants of righteousness. He goes on to say, 1 Timothy 4, that false teachers devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. More hypocrisy, selfish self-promotion, immorality and hatred and anger are all seen as the work of the evil one and his servants in the New Testament. And the devil is particularly opposed to the work of the gospel, snatching the gospel seed away before it can bear fruit and blinding the minds of unbelievers to Jesus' glory. It is a measure of the devil's cunning that in a world awash with lies and violence, 
and in a society where gospel progress is so opposed and the church has been hollowed out by false teaching, by hypocrisy, self-serving and immorality, that so many deny the existence of the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. And that's true of some, who's even true of some who say they believe the Bible. They give lip service to scripture's teaching, <coughs> giving no real credit, though, to the devil's activity in daily life, while yet others who say they believe the Bible seem to overlook those areas where scripture says the devil is most at work in the church, false teaching and immorality, and instead have become preoccupied with demonic activity, even falsely claiming that believers in Jesus can be demonised. We must hear and take seriously the teaching of God's word. We are facing the scheming of the devil. We're engaged in a wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil. We should recognise that, not to be made fearful, but so that we hear what God says in Ephesians 6 about the devil's work and how it can be resisted. We need to recognise that so that we make sure we respond in the way God calls us to, the way that will ensure our safety and victory. Finally, writes Paul in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are told to be strong. We are not to blind ourselves to the threat, not run away in fear and abandon the fight. We are to be strong. But we have no power or wisdom in ourselves for this fight. We're of a race easily deceived by the evil one, easily snared by his enticements. We are to be strong, it says, in the Lord who in his ministry, by his casting out demons, showed that he is the one who can plunder the evil one's possessions effortlessly and who in his death has defeated the evil one once and for all on the cross. The Lord, writes Paul, provides us with the strength of his might, the might that raised our Lord from the dead and broke the power of the devil, that is, the power of death, the might that has judged the devil and cast him from heaven. The strength of his might is the strength the devil has no power to resist or overcome. And we come to enjoy the strength of his might in our struggle with the devil by taking on what the Lord provides, the Lord's own armour, the armour of God, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 59, is that right? Is that, I, I think it's come through, yes. In Isaiah 59, the Lord is portrayed as a mighty warrior who is victorious over all those who oppose him. Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. See, Paul is about to portray God's provision for our struggle through the picture of an ancient warrior's equipment. In speaking of this provision as God's own armour, 
God is actually assuring us that in our struggle with his enemies, the spiritual enemies of his people, we have been equipped by him with what's already been proven to triumph, with what will ensure victory. It is with this armour, verse 13, that we can stand against the schemes of the evil one, that we can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, standing your ground may not seem like victory to us, but it is complete victory. Uh, Modern armies, of course, are mobile, but Paul is creating a picture from ancient warfare. Ancient wars were about the great battle and holding your ground on the battlefield. You would have one army in its camp on one side and the other army in its camp on the other side and then the ground between them. And on the day of the battle, the two opposing armies, often tens of thousands of men, would advance towards each other and then join in combat with great clash and shock. The winner was the one who held his ground. You see, in that warfare, to turn your back and flee was to invite certain death. The ones left standing on the battlefield at the end of the day were not grim survivors, but victors. The field was theirs. So Paul is telling, believers telling us, how we can be victors when the day of evil comes. Now, the day of evil includes testing times now. But it is especially uh, referring to the last day, the great day of death and judgment at the end. So Paul is telling us how we should live now to be victors at the end, to be still standing in the faith on Jesus' side, the winning side, on the last day. But to stand on that day, we must use the armour God has provided There is nothing else that will give us victory on that day. Our opponents are not flesh and blood. They can't be seen. They can't be fought with ordinary weapons, knives or guns or with any weapons of human invention. To be victorious against this enemy, we must use what God provides. And we're about to look at this provision of God for our victory. But before I do that, let me ask, Are you convinced this struggle is your struggle, that you are engaged in a life and death struggle with the devil and his servants being so much more powerful than you? If you are convinced, well, you'll gladly take up this armour each day with enthusiasm, knowing it will protect you from these enemies too great and cunning for you. If not... Well, you might hear what comes as good advice on the Christian life, but it's something you can take or leave, and you'll be (coughs) ill-equipped. Excuse me. Easily deceived and in danger. So what is this provision? The only provision that will do the job. Give us the victory. Stand therefore, writes Paul, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. (coughs) We start with truth, the belt of truth. Now, by belt, Paul was referring to a leather apron that was worn under the armour and protected the thighs. See, what is the foundation of our protection against the cunning of the devil? It's truth the truth of the gospel, the truth we've come to know in the gospel, which is 113, the word of truth, the truth which is in Jesus. Now, Paul has emphasised in this letter particular aspects of that gospel truth. That is, he has emphasised the love and power of Jesus. You see, in their old life, Uh, The Ephesians had thought that grace, favour, was something you bribed the gods to show you by what you did for them, the sacrifices and offerings you made. But the gospel has taught the Ephesians, as we learned in chapters 1 and 2, that grace is God's gift to them, given out of his great love and mercy, given to them before the foundation of the world, given to them in Christ. He wanted them to know that freely given, This grace that saved them was secure and they were secure in it. Trials and hardships did not mean they had lost God's favour. And Paul had also stressed to them the power of Jesus. Remember back chapter 1 where he prayed that they'd know God's power at work, the power of Jesus, like the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. He's prayed that they would know that power and he's reminded them that the Jesus who is exalted over all things is actually the head of his church, his body. You see, gospel tells truth, tells believers that they are joined, united to the one who rules over all things. For Ephesians, conscious that they lived in a world populated by powerful spiritual forces, this is a truth they always had to keep close to them. That frees them from fear. And don't we also need to live always conscious of this gospel truth, that we are loved with a love we have not earned but is freely given to us in Christ, a love that has brought us forgiveness through the death of our Lord. And so that whatever hardship we might be facing, it's not because we've lost God's favour or he's punishing us in anger. We are loved and he is treating us as his children. And don't we need to remember that our Saviour is overall more powerful than viruses or governments, more powerful than destructive lies. We need to keep gospel truth close to us each day, the truth of the power and love of Jesus that Paul has prayed in this letter that we would know more and more of. And above the belt of truth, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, of course, was essential protection 
that covered all the vital organs like your heart and liver and lungs. And the righteousness that Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians is the righteous behaviour that is to be characteristic of the new self in Jesus created, he said in chapter 424, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Right living, the way of life described in Ephesians 4 to 6, will protect us in our struggle against the devil. It will stop us from being sucked into the world of darkness, the world that wants to shun God. If, for example, we follow the instructions in Ephesians 5 about sexual purity, we'll be kept free from sexual guilt and shame that distances us from God. If we control our anger and our tongues, not letting the sun go down on our anger, we won't create a space, a foothold for the devil's work of nurturing bitterness, division and hatred. Consider how vulnerable we become to the devil's schemes when we allow ourselves to keep doing something Jesus says we shouldn't. Our confidence then can be eroded by a sense of being a hypocrite or we can be distanced from God by a sense of shame or worse, we can become so in love with our sin that we harden our heart to God's word and don't want to hear the word because it makes us feel uncomfortable about continuing in our sin, the word that sustains our relationship with Christ. You are protected from the devil's plots and schemes by living Jesus' way, living his way even when no one else sees you, when you are isolated in your own home. Righteousness gives vital protection. And then Paul goes on to a most important piece of clothing, your footwear. And we might not think that shoes are that important. But for the Roman soldier, what was on your feet meant the difference between life and death. You see, there was a lot of pushing and shoving in ancient warfare. And if you were driven backwards and your formation would be broken, you'd be very vulnerable. And blood was, is slippery. If you fell over, you would most likely die, trampled by your own side or unable to defend yourself against the other side. So footwear was vital and Romans, Roman soldiers had a special kind of shoe, the caligar, and there's a picture of it there because there are hundreds of discarded ones all over Europe, right? It was a half boot with a studded sole which was good for marching and fighting. It gave both stability and mobility. So what, says Paul, gives the Christian stability and mobility in our struggle against the forces of evil? Well, he says it's the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and it can also have the sense of the readiness that we should have with the gospel of peace. That is, taking our stand on the gospel and being prepared to share the gospel. The gospel of peace is the message of Jesus, that he has brought us peace with God and each other, reconciling us through his death. This is the message we're told Jesus preached to all who are near and far, preaches still in preaching the good news of his death and resurrection uh, through the message of the apostles. Believing the gospel 
brings us peace with God and that gives us stability because we have peace with the almighty creator. Whatever happens, whether hardship or opposition, at peace with the true and living God, we know we are not being treated as his enemies but as his friends. The gospel of peace gives us stability then in all the ups and downs, the successes and trials of life. But Paul is not just talking about believing the gospel. He's talking about being ready with it, being ready to share it with others. You see, we journey through life securely by being always ready to relate to the world, not as our enemy, but with the message that seeks peace and brings peace, a message that, well, keeps them and us focused on the big realities, God and death and judgment. And God in his generosity provides us with more. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. There is the shield of faith. Roman soldiers had a large leather shield that they soaked in water before a battle as their enemies would try and discomfort them, force them to flee by shooting flaming arrows at them. Paul says the devil seeks to shoot flaming arrows at us. Those arrows might be trials like sickness that cause us to doubt God's goodness or the opposition of family or persecution by the state or remembrance of past sins saying to us that God could never forgive this or that or it could be the temptations of loneliness or at this time just plain weariness that leaves us feeling no joy. There are many ways the devil will try and unsettle us and drive us from the field. And the answer to all of these is faith. Faith in the promises God gives us in the gospel. Faith in the one who gives us these promises. Faith in the promises that trusting Jesus we are forgiven, we're adopted as God's children, we're at peace with him, that he will work all things for our good. And faith that the Lord Jesus is for us, the one he is revealed to be in his word. We've seen a little of who he is in Ephesians. He's the one who reigns at God's right hand over all and so the one who can protect us from all. He's the one who is our peace and so our peace is secure. He's the one who is our saviour. He is the bridegroom of his people who loves them and is determined to take us to himself. Faith both protects us from and extinguishes the devil's attacks by turning us to God's word, his revelation of himself and his promises, and saying like Jesus in his temptations, it is written. Faith in the gospel especially says, the Lord Jesus is my saviour. He loves me and he's given himself for me and he is able to keep me. And put on, says Paul, the helmet of salvation. A helmet was vital to an ancient soldier. It protected the head and allowed the soldier to look up to keep a level gaze in the face of approaching danger. It allowed the soldier to see the standard, to orient himself in the battlefield, to know what the commander was doing. So what allows us to do that in our spiritual battle, allows us to keep a steady gaze ahead and to stay in touch with our commander's plans? 
It's the hope of salvation, knowing that Jesus is a mighty saviour now and he will bring you to all he has promised you. Remember, Paul in Ephesians 1 has already prayed that Ephesians would know their hope, the hope that we've been called to. And now we see how important that prayer is. We should be aware of all that God has promised us, conscious that it is a sure and certain hope because of Jesus' victory. We need to keep our eyes on that goal, the end of our race, the new heaven and earth, where there'll be no pain or crying or mourning and where God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. We should keep our eyes on the plan of God for his creation to unite all things in Christ. So following Jesus is no sideshow. It's at the core of God's purposes. That will protect us, allow us to meet times when our human hopes and plans are thrown into disarray with confidence that God's plan is sure and our lives serving him are purposeful. And Paul then comes to the one offensive weapon God has equipped us with, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. (coughs) Roman soldiers had a short sword for close combat and it could do a lot of damage. God's word, known, spoken, proclaimed, cuts through the devil's lies and in the Gospels, we see Jesus use that word in temptation to turn aside the devil's attack. The word will be, says the psalmist, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It will drive the darkness out, give us safe movement, secure progress. And the well-wielded sword will make the enemy withdraw. It takes ground. Jesus has said that the gospel will bring conviction to the world of their sin, bring light in darkness, turn people from Satan to God. We need to know this word, to be able to discern truth from error ourselves and to use it to expose the lies others believe and welcome them to the light. And there's one final piece of provision that Paul wants to stress. He doesn't draw any parallel here with an ancient soldier's equipment, but the Roman soldier never went into battle by himself. Their success, their strength was in acting together. Here we're reminded that we're in it together and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Praying in the Spirit's not tongues. It's having our prayers shaped and moulded by the Spirit to pursue the Spirit's priorities as the Spirit helps us become more like Christ. It's praying with the Spirit-given assurance that God is our Father. And do you notice the repetition of the word or when shall we pray all occasions? How? With all kinds of prayers. For whom? All the saints and especially, as we'll see, for the gospel preacher. This is a great encouragement to pray for each other, for all kinds of concerns. Nothing is too great or too small and no one should be excluded from our prayers. The danger is drowsiness of having prayer but not using it because it, well, just seems so routine and things don't seem so urgent. But a Christian who is not praying is like a soldier who lets himself fall asleep at his post 
because nothing seems to be happening. Ours is a cunning enemy who is always seeking advantage, even when we are unaware. So we have to stay alert and always keep on praying for each other. Now that is important at this time. Uh, The reason we do that daily devotion is to help you pray for each other. Those precious three names at the end of the devotion sent out each weekday. And if you don't have the habit already, that will also help you develop the habit of spending time in God's word. Now is the time to get good new habits. That regular reading and prayer is one of the ways in which we experience the strength of God's might. So if you need help with that or want to start praying regularly for your brothers and sisters, email the office. And especially, we should be praying for fearlessness in making the gospel known. We should be praying that for each other and especially for those gifted and set apart for the work of the gospel. There's always a temptation in our society to self-censor, to take out or make less prominent those parts we will think will offend our audience, whether it's about sin and judgment or Jesus being the only saviour or our dependence on his grace and not on our works. Can you imagine the strength of that temptation when, like Paul, you're in prison, in chains, and your release hangs on whether your judge likes the message or not? Yet Paul prays, for boldness, for fearlessness, that he would be faithful in making clear the gospel in its entirety, no matter the response or the consequence for his personal welfare. If Paul needed prayer to be faithful and fearless, how much more do we? So pray for us. Well, this is God's armour and it's all we need to stand on the evil day. To win the field at the end. It looks so ordinary, doesn't it? There's nothing spectacular here, no special gifts. It's gospel truth and life. Righteousness, godliness that has at its heart love. It's faith and hope, the word and prayer. What we need for victory is all there in the gospel. We don't need techniques for casting out demons or secret knowledge or dependency on spiritually powerful or specially gifted people. What we need is the armour of of our almighty Saviour, which he gives to every believer in the gospel. But it must be used. Have you noticed that there were lots of verbs in this passage? Put on, take up. Having fastened, having put on, take up, take, pray. God is asking us to do something, to hear this word and act. And don't think you can win without without this arm. We'll have a, a final victory where you ignore God's provision. And there are no excuses for not using it, all of it. I mean, what would you think of a soldier who'd been properly equipped but then went into battle without some of his equipment who left his helmet or his rifle behind? Or what would you think of a soldier who, given all the right gear, then thought he could substitute, you know, some items of equipment? Say he thought the standard boots were too heavy or lacked style and so went into battle in his Nike sneakers. What would you think of a soldier who became disillusioned and actively sabotaged the equipment provider, jamming the mechanism of his rifle or cutting his webbing. 
Well, I guess you might think they were lazy or foolish or overconfident in their own abilities, but you would never think they were safe or likely to survive. Well, what should we think of believers who feel safe when they say they believe the truth but neglect righteousness? Or want to substitute other things like listening to popular Christian preachers or watching YouTube videos or reading Christian novels for their own study of God's word? Or Christians who refuse to pray? We wouldn't think them likely to survive, would we? Our confidence has to be in God, not in ourselves, and we show that by using what he has provided, using all of it. Now, brothers and sisters, this talk has had three goals. That you would firstly know and own this struggle with the devil's cunning as your own, even if it means a shift in your thinking. Secondly, that you would understand God's provision and thirdly that you would use it even if it means you have to change your behaviour. It has those goals because this is God's provision to you whatever your trials, whatever lies you meet, whatever hostility you endure, no matter how powerful your opponents, this is God's provision to you to share in his victory at the last day to rise with Christ to eternal life. So every day, remind yourself, remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, of the love and power of Jesus. Every day, commit to living a godly life as if your life depended on it. Every day, be ready with the gospel. Have it in your heart and on your tongue. Every day, grow in faith by exercising faith, trusting your Lord to be all be for you all that he has said. He is to do all for you all he has promised. Every day, Remember the goal of our salvation, to rise to life with our Lord. Every day, read his good word. Every day, pray for each other and all the saints. Finally, writes Paul, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And having done all, to stand. Let us pray. Our gracious God, your word is so good and so clear. You have given us all we need to triumph in the gospel of your son. We thank you for its truth, that in believing it we do come to know Jesus' love for us and his great power. We thank you for the way of life it brings, a way of life that leaves us free from the devil's snares. We thank you that it is a message of peace that gives us peace with you and can embrace all we know with peace. We thank you for its good promises. We thank you for the great hope you give us we thank you for your sure and true word and we thank you for this extraordinary gift of prayer that we ordinary people can come at all times with all our concerns to you, the true and living, the almighty and holy God. 
our gracious Father, continue your mercy to us and by your powerful spirit, stir us up each day to put on this armour that you have provided for us so that we will be amongst those who stand as victors at the last day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.